So Luke chapter 12 is where we are this morning. So go ahead, you go and look there. It's a big chapter. So go ahead and look at verse 49. We're getting toward the, uh, to the end. We have one more um, uh, message, one more sermon that will come from Luke chapter 12, and then we will be, uh, then we will be done with it. Um, some of the things, just uh, kind of give us a quick overview of the things that we've seen in, in Luke chapter 12 has been lots of training, lots of warning, lots of encouraging, and lots of exhorting uh, from, from Jesus to uh, mostly to the disciples, sometimes to the crowd, but mostly to the disciples. And I'm going to take a drink before I hold this thing the whole time. So mostly to the disciples. He used, he used parables that, that spoke to the, um, the idolatrous nature of the heart to, to, to want to please ourselves through abundance. We saw that in the parable of the, of the, the rich uh, fool. Um, we saw the, the temptation to fear man and what man will think of us or what man can do to us and completely forget how, um, forget to, to fear God, the one who has the power and authority to do far worse than any man could, could do to us. And yet it's also that, that same God we see in the same chapter who has shown us great love. He showed us great love and, and, and great love and how he cares for us with his, his provision, his abundance and provision and, and his kingdom that he doesn't hold back from us. If we seek the kingdom, he's not going to pull the string back further, but yet he gives us the kingdom. It's by his good pleasure that he gives us these, that he gives us these, these things. And last week, we saw in the, the warning and the exhortation to the disciples and also to us to, to be ready. And, and what's interesting about that passage, and I think I said it last week, was, was that here's Jesus telling the disciples about his second coming when, when he hasn't even been resurrected yet. So he's already telling them, warning them to, to be ready, to be that, that faithful servant for the second coming. Make, shape your Excuse me, shape your, shape your life with this, to have a, a posture for the things of God, for the things of Christ. He's been teaching and training his disciples. And he's been teaching and training his disciples in this way with all the warnings and all that. Because remember back in chapter 9, his face is set toward Jerusalem. And for us, that's, that's code for us knowing that he's going to the, he's going to the cross. This is Jesus' mission. He's, he is on his way. He knows that there's going to be a time when, when, when he's not going to be there in the flesh with them anymore. And, and they are going to be the ones that, that are going to take the gospel, and they're going to take this gospel, and they're going, to be, they're going to preach the message of the kingdom of God to all nations and to, to all peoples. They're going to plant churches throughout the world. As the Holy Spirit establishes and expands the kingdom. And for generations and generations until Jesus comes back, this is the mission of the church. And by God's sovereign will, the gospel has now come to us. It has been brought to us in, in, in our generation here in Statesboro, uh, Georgia. And now we have that same mandate, that same mandate commanded to us in the Scripture that our generation is to make the supremacy of Christ known here in Statesboro, but also as much as we physically can to the nations and to prepare as well the next generation who are with us this morning 
until Jesus comes back. It's a massive endeavor. It's been going on for thousands of years, and praise God that he has saw fit to preserve it for us. Praise the Lord. It's a glorious mission. Can, Can you think of anything more worthy to give your life to than to live in mission for the king? Everyone wants to be part of something bigger. Everyone wants to be a part of something greater. Our, our, in, in our technological age, where everybody is more connected than ever, but yet we are more alone than ever. We feel small. We feel useless. We feel alone. We feel less fulfilled than ever, but yet we have the greatest of all of technology, advancements, and comfort. Well, there's a reason for that angst. That angst is there because we were meant as people created by God for something bigger, something greater, to be a part of this great story, the greatest campaign, the greatest mission of all time. And that's what Jesus is bringing us all into. He's bringing us into this story, this massive story of how God has been working out according to his glory and for his glory, this rescue mission to save and to redeem his people. We call them the elect. Well, the Bible calls them the elect. I was going to get corrected later for that one. He draws us in. Think of the son of this. And in all of that, he draws us in. He makes us his children, and he becomes our father. This is really good. This is really good. And, and at this point, no matter the cost of doing that mission... No matter the sacrifice, no matter the the pain, that shouldn't change any of our devotion. But in the end, we'll see that it's worth it. Because Christ is worth it. Christ is glorious. It'll be worth it. Jesus Christ is worth it. Be assured of that, brothers and sisters. If you have any doubt, Christ is worth it. But this work... This work of being people of the gospel, people who believe the truth and hold to the truth, uh, uh, that, that truth, if you actually live it out, you're going to find very quickly or sometimes in a, in a slow fade that it's not very popular. Hey, buddy. Sorry. That's okay. I've done it a few times. That truth is not popular. That there will be opposition. There will be division. And it might even come from the most unlikely of places. When we look at chapter 12, we see Jesus telling us that very reality. The very reality. Yeah, boys, I'm bringing you in. But there's going to be division that's going to be real close. Look at verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, and and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, 
three against two, and, and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. And may His Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see that holy, inspired, inerrant word for His glory and for our joy. Amen. Very much like last week, maybe with a little bit, if you were here, you remember that a little bit less cutting people up, with a little bit more fire this time. Jesus isn't speaking very tolerantly, if that's a word. Thank you. But Jesus is being very non, or he's being very judgmental. I mean, no one, you're never going to see someone on their Jesus t-shirt say, I came to cast fire on the earth and would it already kindled. You're not going to see it on the, on the coffee cup at the Christian bookstores if they even exist anymore. You're not going to see them on the, on, on the, the t-shirts. But what we have, though, is a Jesus who loves us enough to tell us reality. To tell us, this is how it's going to be. This, this is how cool and accepted you are going to be if you follow me. How you will be received if you really believe the gospel and if you have a, a real biblical convictions about life. You know, how we live in the United States, especially here in the Southeast, is, is really completely unique than, than really what the, the, the rest of history has kind of shown us and taught us. But, but really, now, uh, it's unique compared to the rest of the country and even compared to the rest of the world. Uh, for so long, we lived, in, in a, we lived in a Christianized culture, mainly where only Christian morals are, are what's pushed and taught and and, and proclaimed, and now those things have, in, in popular media, in a sense, have completely been wiped away. And, and, and as Christians, people living in the Southeast, we've gotten, we've gotten used to that. We've gotten used to this idea that, that really everybody's kind of like me. We've gotten used to that. But the rest of the country, the rest of the world, it's not. And before we know it, it's radically being changed even, even here. More and more, biblical Christianity is being marginalized to the fringes. You, me, you're being marginalized to the fringes. You're being categorized and labeled in such a way where if we label them this, we don't have to deal with them because their voice doesn't matter. And, and so we get this feeling, and, and we've had this. You've, you've had this feeling. We get this feeling of fear and, and angst because there's this sense of loss. There's a sense of loss that we've lost our Christianized uh, culture. We, we have a sense of loss because we're being marginalized more and, and more. We really don't have much of a voice. In a way, Jesus is telling us, don't be surprised by that. Because if you have biblical convictions, then division will come. We're just not used to it. And I think brothers and sisters around the world who may be seeing some of that take place in our country, they're saying, welcome. 
the water's fine, Jesus is still king. And we're still kind of freaking out a little bit because we just got thrown in. No peace, but division. Quite an odd statement for Jesus to say, especially because just a couple weeks ago we celebrated Christmas. And we all remember what the angels said, right? Peace on earth. Well, sort of. Sort of. Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. John 14, 27. Jesus said himself that he was leaving his own unique peace with his disciples. Peter summarizes the gospel in, in Acts as the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Yet on the other side of that, we had Simeon, who right after Jesus was, was born, told Mary that, that this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel as a sign that he will be opposed. So obviously in this passage, Jesus is making a distinction here. Again, our world hates distinctions. They want everybody to be the same. Jesus is making a distinction here between the world as a whole and those specific people on whom God's favor rests, which is actually what the angels said. Peace be with those on whom God's favor rests. There's a clear fundamental implication of this text, that there is a powerful division between those who have received the message of Christ and the person of Christ and those who have rejected the message of Christ and the person of Christ. And that's why he is telling the disciples this. That's why he's telling us to have this given reality. So if we believe the gospel, if we believe the scripture is God's word, if your desire for your life to be gospel-centered, then the reality of life isn't always going to be peaches and cream with everybody around us. We may not be popular. Fame may go by the wayside. There will be divisions. There might even be hostility. There may be suffering, pain, persecution, marginalization, as we've already said. But what's even worse is that it could get really close to home, as Jesus says. It could get really close to home in our families. In the the places where we would think that it shouldn't happen. When we follow Jesus, there will be divisions one way or another. Jesus Christ is divisive. Jesus Christ is divisive in Statesboro. The gospel is divisive in Statesboro. Trouble comes, though, when we see reality as we wish it would be and not as it is. So the two things I want to show you from this this text this morning is, number one, the gospel is what prepares us for the reality. The gospel prepares us for for this reality. And second, the gospel is what sustains us in that reality. So prepares us for the reality and sustains us in the reality. The gospel prepares us for this reality. We see this in verses 49 and 50. It's alluding to the gospel, right? Because before Jesus tells them the kind of division that they are to expect... He tells them his desire and his longing and what's distressing him, like what he's got coming up that he is not looking forward to, but he's looking forward to, what he's longing and desiring for. 
And in both of these, in his longing and his desire, we see the God of the gospel. Because that's what prepares us for the harsh reality. We have to see the God of the gospel to prepare us for the reality of division. We have to have faith in, the, in Jesus of the gospel and see these things. So verse 49 shows us Jesus' desire. Jesus has come to bring fire upon the earth. That's a powerful picture. And, and fire, as we generally know, is a, is a picture of judgment, a, a purging, a purging of evil. John the Baptist used this, this language to describe what Jesus would, would do. We saw it actually really makes sense if you look at the text that we looked at before with Jesus talking about his second coming and the judgment that he would bring. That really makes uh, sense to us. Uh, but, but also, I think we, we see something where Jesus is also longing for. Jesus is also desiring. As I believe he's speaking of a time, he's speaking of a time when, when he would baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit and fire. More words of John, John the Baptist. He said that Jesus would be the one that baptizes his followers with the Holy Spirit and, and fire. So I think Jesus is, is looking forward to this time that after his resurrection, Pentecost would come, the Holy Spirit would come and, and, and ignite and inflame the, the believers, followers of, of, of Christ and, and, and regeneration and indwell them with truth and seal them with the Holy Spirit. Uh, as, a, as a payment for the ensuring of their eternal uh, inheritance. It would sanctify them, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us. And I think Jesus is looking forward to this time when the Holy Spirit would do such a thing, as well as looking forward to that final judgment when finally there would be justice and equity for all, according to God's righteousness. So think about how the gospel is all over this verse. Jesus' mind and his body was headed to the cross. The gospel is all over this because we see a Savior who is completely devoted to your salvation and your sanctification. Completely devoted to your salvation and your sanctification. But verse 50 tells us of his distress. In, in that distress, as we see from verse 50, I have, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, this isn't him looking back at his baptism by John. This is him looking forward to the cross. This is about his commitment and his devotion to accomplishing the will of his Father. Salvation gospel is all over this because he is willing to do whatever it takes for us to be reconciled to the father he's ready look i mean look at the urgency i mean my my text has has exclamation points there's an urgency here jesus is longing and desiring for this to take place it is what is on his mind we are the one we are on his mind here and, and here's the thing, no matter how double-minded, distracted, forgetful, lazy, unfaithful, and our loving toward him and our commitment toward him, he is saying, I have always been focused on this. 
I haven't wavered. He was locked on for our redemption, no matter the cost. And even now, that has not changed. Even now, that has not, has not changed. He, he's now at the, the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, whispering words of love and care for our salvation and our sanctification at this very moment. He's always working. He's always concerned. And even at this point, whatever the cost. So see the cost. See the distress. The cross was looming over him. But it wasn't the torture and pain. It wasn't the torture and pain that he was, he was dreading. It was the necessity of taking on himself the raw sewage of our sin. The raw sewage of our sin. And, and, then, and then bearing the, the full wrath of God. I tremble thinking about those words. He drank every bitter drop. He choked it down until he drowned it in it. And here he longed to bring fire on the earth and wished that fire was kindled. But first, he had to be baptized in the death on the cross, immersed in our sin. And he couldn't wait to get this done. This is why the gospel prepares us for the reality of division. This is what we, we set our minds on. Colossians 3, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on the things that are above and not on the things of the earth. What prepares us for that division is setting our minds on the gospel. Setting our minds on the, the things above. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. We become prepared for this reality when we set our minds on these gospel truths. When we face the vision, when we face that pain, when we face that suffering, we set our minds on these things, the things that, that, that God has proclaimed over us, what God has proclaimed over you. You have died, and now your life is hidden with Christ in God. The gospel prepares us for this reality, but the gospel also sustains us in that reality. It sustains us. It sustains us because for those who are in Christ, we have been given a peace. That gospel gives us a peace. That's why we prepare in it. That's why we immerse ourselves in it, because it, it gives us peace, even when there's such division around us. And the heartbreaking reality, no matter how good, how good and sweet the gospel is to us, to the world, it is bitter. To the world, it's offensive, it's intolerant, it's unloving, it's unwanted. And that's the picture that we're getting from Jesus here in the following verses. In 51 through 53, he tells us division. 
I have not come to bring peace. I've come to bring division. The gospel divides. We, we see that division in our world, right? I mean, we, we, we can talk for days, literally, now. I mean, I can just pull Twitter, and I can just show you gospel division. Division in our world because of the gospel. It's becoming more widely believed that, that Christianity, at least what we would call biblical Christianity, is, is now being synonymously labeled with intolerant, bigot, homophobic, and misogynistic. That's Christianity to the world today. Allegiance to Jesus around the world could kill you. It could imprison you. Back in the 80s, and I know I'm looking back for some of us, back in the 80s, uh, Charles Colson, some of y'all might know who he was, um, noted during some of his frequent interviews with the media, he was told numerous times by the, by the reporter before they, you know, they either went live or, or that's before they started recording, just, just kind of like tone down the religious talk. Tone down talking about, uh, about Jesus. And the excuse, though, the reason was, well, well, he's saying why. And, of course, he's... He's a guy that was in jail. He came out of jail. He started a ministry for prisoners and is doing a, a great work. And so it's like, well, why do you, what do you want to hear from me? Right? So he's completely confused. And, and they say, well, because that would offend people. It would offend people. Uh, he also noted that there was a policy of one major newspaper in the United States that, that would never print the two words Jesus and Christ together. And they never would print it because it was a, that would mean that the, the editors were, were making a judgment call on who Jesus was. And they didn't want to put that on their people or whoever read their newspaper and to offend whoever may read. Now, I, I know that's back in the 80s. Uh, just this week, I read from uh, or heard from the, the briefing from Dr. Albert Moeller's daily podcast that in the Netherlands, um, a group, I know that's Europe, but still, uh, in Netherlands, a group of Dutch Reformed pastors, so people kind of that look like me, because I'm Dutch, that look a lot like me, but they speak Dutch, and they believe what we believe. They recently signed a document called the Nashville Statement, and the Nashville Statement, I believe, came out, I think, in 2017, I believe. And it was a statement by evangelicals on, on biblical marriage and sexuality. And, and this week, they, they signed it. And when they signed it, they had people in the community rise up against them. And now the, the Dutch government is now uh, investigating whether they should prosecute them criminally for signing the Nashville Statement. for publicly acknowledging for what Dutch people believed for centuries. Make no mistake, it's not just Europe. We can come up with tons of examples here in the States. The issue at hand, brothers and sisters, is not religious freedom. That's not the issue. The issue is the gospel. The issue is Jesus himself. The issue is the, the exclusivity of the gospel. And may we pray for those brothers and sisters as they face that persecution. There's division in the world. The gospel divides the world. But we've also seen gospel division in the church. Division in the church. You know, nowadays, some, division, or some denominations think it's fashionable to argue 
in the name of unity that uh, that every Christian should remain in these churches even after those churches have abandoned the gospel or abandoned any kind of uh, uh, theological position that, that makes sense. That's not to mention the, the moral positions that they are accepting because of that slippery slope off of, the, off of that solid theology. And yes, Jesus does pray. He does pray. We would agree. Jesus does pray that his church would dwell in unity and that they would be, uh, or that they would be one. And, and, but that unity is, is rooted in genuine faith, genuine faith in him. And that genuine faith in him is always rooted in biblical truth. You cannot have genuine faith without biblical truth. That's biblical truth always incites biblical faith. The unity that they want is only carnal civility. It's what we enjoy when we go to football games and we're all wearing the same shirt. That's just carnal civility. Sure, we can get along, but in the end, it'll lead us to hell. I'm not, I love football. I love football. I'm looking forward to watching some games this afternoon. So. But you see the, the reality and, and one of the biggest arguments that people have used, especially against Protestant churches, and I've heard this, is that there's no unity in Protestant churches. There's churches everywhere. There's thousands of denominations. That's bad. And I'm here to tell you that denominations in different churches are good. And you want to know why? Number one, freedom. We have freedom. And we have freedom to exercise that freedom to live in the truth. When they go away, we have the freedom to move on and keep pressing on with the gospel and with the truth. We have religious liberty to worship freely, but we get to worship according to the truth. New denominations and churches like ours only exist because there was a division over some fundamental point of the gospel. So praise the Lord we have that freedom. Praise the Lord that we have that truth according to the scripture so that we can be a people shaped by that scripture. When that other building or other places or our denominations say otherwise, those aren't the things that make us a church. Of course, I wish there was no divisions of the church. I wish there was no sin, no agendas, no false teachers and teaching and teachers that exist but that's not what Jesus said. He said, there will be divisions. There will be divisions. There are divisions in this world. There are divisions in our churches. And may we pray that the Lord would lead us, that there may not be division among us. But as Jesus gives us very specifically and gets really close to home, that there will be division in the home. And that gets real close. Because we can live we may get angry, we may get fearful. We can, we can live with the idea that there's people on the other side of the country that disagree with us and hate us just because we say we're Christians or we believe what the Bible teaches about X, Y, or Z. We, we can, we can oh, live with that idea. But what about if that was our own children? What if it was our dad or our mom or in-laws, cousins, uncles, aunts? 
don't, don't miss the kind of devotion that Jesus is asking us here. The, the extraordinary words that Jesus is asking of us here. Teachers don't usually proclaim or ask for this kind of priority of their followers. The kind of priority over family relationships, but Jesus does. There are many places in the world where a person's decision to follow Jesus Christ actually means that they will be literally cut off from their family or even killed by their family. Think about that reality. Think about that cost. For us, we, we may only uh, introduce an awkwardness or tension in our family. It makes family get-togethers and Christmases and Thanksgivings kind of weird. But, but none of that shame, none of that awkwardness or rejection or would, would warrant any kind of legitimate grounds for not following Jesus. I know that some of you in this room can speak firsthand, heartbroken experience of this happening, that division in your family. You know that there are some people in your family, whoever it may be, that there are certain topics that are off, off the table that you can never speak of because it would incite such anger. It's probably one of the hardest things to go through when a family member rejects you personally and wants nothing to do with you because you follow Jesus or you have some biblical stance against their worldview. We simply cannot hold any loyalty above our loyalty to Jesus Christ. And, and, and the reality of that is, is we may have to pay that high price. We may have to pay that high price in order to follow him. When we face these kinds of divisions, it may look like rejection. It may look like marginalization or a loss of a job, suffering persecution. But again, we think back to the gospel. It's the gospel that sustains us. Because when we are weak, he is strong. It's in that suffering. It's in that, that pain of rejection when really, we really start to identify with Jesus who suffered loss, who suffered rejection and division. Division is only half the story because there's peace too. There's not peace on earth, but peace with whom God knows. Real, eternal, everlasting peace. Peace with God. Romans 5.1. Love this verse. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because we have been justified. Justified. Made right. By faith. We only have peace with God, because by grace he justifies us by faith. We were once all enemies. In fact, you look down later on in Romans 5, you'll see that. You were enemies. We were once enemies. Enemies like everyone else in the world that opposes Christ. That's the truth. That's the, that's the kind of peace that Jesus then prays for, that, we're, that we would have. Is now we would have peace with God. 
That's what he is praying for. That's the peace that comes from the gospel. If it's in that peace that we have received, how does that then move us to live in a life or in a world where there's so much unbelieving dissension and division? Brothers and sisters, if we were at peace with God, the only real division then that we should have with the world is if it's in the gospel or not. The only division, but strive to be at peace in anything else. But may we never surrender the truth. May we never capitulate and back down. Never back down. Because that's what matters. You know, you don't have to be a Christian to be my friend. You don't. I want my friends to be Christians, but it's not a stipulation for my friendship. And I don't need to be all up in arms at the fact that someone hates me or disagrees with me. I can't be surprised by it because now Jesus just told me, don't be surprised by it. I can't be surprised by it. In fact, often the peace at which we, we live amongst this conflict in our world today that others will be drawn into because they want peace. And, and this is the peace that is attractive because as we know, it's peace that rests in sovereign grace. Not the church, but God's sovereign grace. There's nothing that has caused more division in this world, in history, in our own country, in our own cities, in our churches, in our families, and even in our own hearts to hand Jesus Christ in the gospel. If we're going to be faithful to Jesus, we must be willing to embrace the division and the separation that he brings. That's, that's the reality of following Jesus in a fallen world that enjoys living in darkness. It, it doesn't comprehend the light. It hates the light. John chapter 1. But Christ is worthy. Christ is worthy. We've seen that in the gospel. We've seen what he has done and what he continues to do. And even though we know we can expect this division, we must press on and we must be faithful to proclaim the gospel and to endure. Real quick, before as we close, I think the most powerful thing that I encountered this week when studying this passage was how when, when we are faced with division, even where it hurts the most in our families. And, and pray that the Lord doesn't do that. But when there's division in our families, and that hurt comes. And some of y'all know, it is painful. Or when you are abandoned by friends and family and rejected. Can you recognize and see it's in that place, again, where we begin to look more and more like Jesus. We get the... We, we, we can, in a sense, um, uh, be sympathetic. Empathetic to how Jesus felt in a very small way. And, and, and let that knowledge be what, what presses us on to continue and be, and, and be faithful. And continue to even love them despite that. The gospel prepares us for that reality. The gospel is what gives us peace. And the gospel is what sustain us. 
Do you have that peace? Could you lean on that peace? If you are faced with that division, could you lean on that peace? And are you leaning on that peace? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word again. Thank you for the solid rock of Christ. Thank you we get to lean on these truths. And Lord, of course, we pray for unity in our church. We pray for unity in our, in our families. But, oh, Lord, when division comes, let us be grounded so firmly in the truth that not only does it keep us strong, but also it's a truth that compels us to love and to endure well. Thank you for the words this morning. Thank you for showing us again the picture of the gospel. Thank you for our Savior who is always working these things out for us, our sanctification, our salvation, for his glory and for our joy. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.